Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today D.G. Hart. He is professor of history at Hillsdale College, the author of two previous books, Damning Words and Calvinism. His new book is American Catholic, The Politics of Faith During the Cold War. Welcome, Professor Hart. This is your topic today. Uh, thanks. Good to be with you, Mark. I, I appreciate it. Great, great. Well, uh, well, we will just jump right in. Uh, you begin with the 1960 election. You agree that JFK's victory was, I think you call it a real milestone for American Catholics. Why was that? What happened there? Well, he was the first uh, Roman Catholic president. Um, th there was one predecessor, Al Smith, in 1928, who lost uh, badly, uh, wasn't simply because of faith, although there was a, a large anti-Catholic set of arguments that came along in 1928 and again in 1960. Of course, Catholic politicians had thrived locally um, in urban settings for a long time, and at state and even federal levels when it comes to Congress, uh, nothing like what we now see with the Supreme Court with, with five uh, Catholic justices on the court. But so that was, there was a glass ceiling, as it were. Maybe it reflects also a fascination that um, Americans have with the presidency, which, you know, from a certain conservative perspective, maybe, you know, we overdo that at times. But um, Kennedy broke through um, and lots of people then and um, also uh, historians since have, have recognized that as sort of the moment that uh, at least symbolizes when Roman Catholics entered into the mainstream of American society. I should add, though, that it was it was going on well before that. Catholics on the ground were doing very well in all sorts of ways. It, it was in the 1950s, though, as I understand it, from social historians that that suburbanization, entering into the middle class, going to college became much more the norms for a group of Americans that prior to that maybe had been oftentimes in urban ethnic ghettos. Yeah. Are, are people today really aware of how much distance there was between Catholics and Protestants before this process, you call it a process of assimilation, before this process in the mid 20th century took place? Do they know how, how much separation there was? These days, I don't think so. Um, and partly, this may get us into uh, another part of our conversation down the line, talking about first things and and Father Newhouse. But um, 
I know with teaching students now, they have no conception of an older um, fear of Roman Catholics in public office that I grew up with as a Protestant back in the 60s myself. Um, and to think that Billy Graham, Norman Vincent Peale, people like this were organizing uh, Protestant ministers in 1960 in some ways to raise issues about Kennedy seemed like a foreign foreign country now to us when, in the case, say, of Joe Biden, whatever you make of his politics, his family life, etc., his faith is portrayed regularly in the mainstream media as something that's vanilla, uh, very, well, maybe not American, but still it's not threatening the way it was. So there has been a real shift, and I think it has something to do with what happened, the people I cover in the book, where conservatives who were oftentimes Catholic running from William F. Buckley down to people like uh, Father Newhouse made a case for conservatism, made a case for faith-based politics, and eventually in the Reagan era included evangelicals in that mix. And, um, And I think then sort of the older antagonisms between Catholics and Protestants really went away. Um, So, you know, prior to that, and it's still the case that Roman Catholics have their own institutions, parochial schools are not as prevalent as they used to be, Um, but a whole vast series of universities and colleges that the church operates through different agencies. Um, And there is some kind of separation there. Probably, you know, get into odd questions to think about whether Wheaton College, say an evangelical institution, is is now actually more outside the mainstream than, say, Notre Dame is, and whether that's because of Notre Dame football or because of Notre Dame's academic prowess, both of which are significant. Um, But it really is hard to imagine a time when Roman Catholics didn't have the kind of institutions that were accessible and mainstream that they do today. You know, you you mentioned in your book, uh, in the next chapter, something you refer to as, quote, the Americanist controversy in the church. Uh, And that was in the 1890s, 1900s. Leo XII, I believe, was one of the central figures there. What was the Americanist controversy? One of the fascinating parts of doing Catholic history, and Peter Dias the Agostino, I believe was his name, if I'm pronouncing that right, tragically uh, murdered in Chicago maybe a decade ago. But he wrote a book about um, American Catholics that also he went into the archives to see what, in Rome, to see what American Catholics were writing to people in the Vatican, say. So when you do Catholic history, you have to triangulate between the Vatican, oftentimes also European churches, and then the American church. And in the case of the Americanist controversy, it was the case that there were people like Orestes Brownson, Isaac Hecker, who were arguing, and some bishops um, like James Gibbon, who were arguing for that, that America was a very congenial place for the church, and that the church maybe could adopt more democratic, republican sorts of tendencies um, in order to 
it be incorporated even more into American society. Hecker himself, um, there was a biography that came out. It went into French circles, created a furor there because it looked like Amer- the American church was becoming too liberal or too modern. Um, and so in some ways, Leo Thirteenth, in his encyclical Testem Benevolentiae, in 1899, condemned Americanism, this idea of adapting the church to modern, to American society. He Again, he condemned it mildly, but he did condemn it as a heresy. And that forced American church leaders to back away. It was also a way for the papacy to um, try to alleviate, harmonize a controversy that was always going on in the 19th century in France, as I understand it, between the Gallican element in the church versus the ultramontanist element in the church those a similar set of tendencies there where the Gallicanists wanted the french church to be more french and the ultramontanists wanted the french church to be more uh look more to the papacy over over the mountains hence ultramontanism so that was a controversy that in some ways began in america but it became sorted out in france papacy needed to intervene and that does sort of create a, a mindset that makes adapting the church to American settings harder. And I don't want to uh, take away from any questions you're going to, to ask, but to jump ahead to, say, John Courtney Murray in the 1950s, who's writing on church and state matters, trying to make the case as uh, that, say, the founders built better, the American founders built better than they knew, arguing that there was a compatibility between Roman Catholicism and the American founding, thanks to natural law and other traditions that both the country and the church shared. Murray did have to stop writing about this for a time because people in the Vatican, in the Holy Office, were concerned about what he was doing and and thought he was going outside the norms. Again, for people like Al Smith or John F. Kennedy, as far as I can tell, you rarely had bishops or anyone in the Vatican thundering down on American politicians. But when it came to priests or bishops themselves, they they did need to worry what um, the Vatican might say. So that's I hope that answers your question about the Americanist controversy. But it it really is this, this issue of how to adapt the church to an American and or modern setting. What was, yeah, so in the church's eyes by the early 20th century, America was the most modern nation. I mean, in, in, in I know that there, there may be a, uh, a particular definition of modernism here that, that is, that is awfully vague, but the, the, as I'm using it, but America was sort of the, the, the break with tradition the 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 most sort of freewheeling do your own thing with an individualistic country is that is that what americanism stood for in some ways it stood for and again the french um, background is important the vatican uh didn't think of republicanism simply through the lens of the american founding it looked at it more through the lens of the french revolution which was explicitly anti-clerical and very hard on the church, even with the Pope having to go into exile when Napoleon invades in the 1790s. So that, that was a very difficult time for the church. Priests were executed in France if they didn't, if they didn't take the vow and protested, etc. And, and that, wasn't, what, that was not at all the, 
the Catholic experience in the United States. At the time of the founding, there were maybe uh, 30,000 Catholics in the country, roughly 1% to 3% of the, of the population. Most of those Catholics were of English background, centered in, in Maryland, Baltimore in particular. You know, there was a Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. They didn't see this tension that you could see between modern politics of a liberal as, as in classical liberal character. They didn't see that tension here on the ground the way that the Vatican may have seen political modernity with the French Revolution in view. So again, that, that's um, the differences between Europe and North America, even though America is in some ways an extension of the West, and particularly in its early days, an extension of uh, British politics. Um, again, that wasn't necessarily the way people in Central and even Southern Europe saw it. You note an extraordinary thing I wasn't aware of, but in 1956, the Catholic vote only went 45% for the Democrat, Adlai Stevenson. So the Eisenhower, the Republican, took most of the Catholic vote. Kennedy won 83% of the Catholic vote. Did this make the Catholic vote appear to maybe both parties from here on out as a significant voting block to be regarded as something distinct? Um, the short, short answer to that is I wish I were more of a political scientist to have the facts and figures that those people have at my fingertips to say, to answer your question. But the way that I read the literature that I used for the book and that I still continue, continue to work in when I teach courses on Christianity and politics here, for instance, or even religion in America, I don't think, I mean, I think the assumption has always been that ethnicity in a way has shaped politics and that also goes with religion. But again, as once Roman Catholics began to um, suburbanize, become economically better off, go to college much more regularly. And I think now per capita, more Roman Catholics go to university or college than Protestants do. I don't, I can't pull that statistic right, pr produce a, a website or, or a link, but um, I think that is the case. I think once that kind of assimilation happened, it was much harder to look at the Catholic Church or its its uh, members as a voting block, even though for rhetorical purposes, Protestants may have done that or anti-Catholics may have done that. My sense is that, you know, from the 50s on, the Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics voting was, was all over the place, both at local and, and uh, federal levels. And of course, I, I guess you could say that <clears throat> since Reagan maybe well, it still seems like Catholic vote is is pretty much divided. I mean, you reading, following this this election um, cycle, it does look like pollsters are finding the church maybe not evenly divided, but it's it's pretty darn close uh, when it comes to Trump and Biden. Uh, you spend a few pages on John F. Kennedy's funeral. What was the significance of the funeral? Um, well, personally for me, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old maybe, I guess, uh, it meant that everything shut down. 
I mean, just and it was nonstop. You only had three channels on on television then, and everything was covering it. But um, in going back and reading more about it, and even looking at some of the big picture books that covered it, and as a seven-year-old, I just didn't pay attention to this. It was it was sort of modeling. I didn't like the idea that somebody was assassinated. It was really it was hard, even though I was a devout little Baptist then. Um, I I didn't like this news cycle at all, but I also just didn't want to watch this on television nonstop. So, but the way that the books have portrayed it, captured it in images, it was the first time for a lot of Americans that they could actually see a Catholic liturgy and see bishops and priests and uh, see inside a cathedral. I guess it was St. Matthew's in, in D.C. where the where the uh, funeral mass took place. Um, and, you know, you also read about the preparations for it and Jackie Kennedy receiving instructions about what would be a good optic, whether she should kneel to kiss the ring of the archbishop or the cardinal, et cetera. I mean, you know, and, and the negotiations between the Kennedy political White House staff and, and the church, it's um, it's all sort of amusing in a very dark time so but anyway it was it was a way that again roman catholicism became in some ways much more mainstream though i should add having said that that there was this character in the 1950s on television who won an emmy maybe twice father fulton sheen uh bishop fulton sheen had this amazing show where he was dressed in full regalia um and doing his pardon the expression, shtick, uh, with his stories, his chalkboard, and his apologetics. And, and there's another sign that Roman Catholicism wasn't nearly as foreign to, to Americans as sometimes people made it out to be. But still, maybe the liturgical inside the cathedral aspects of it were. You know, uh, to, to get to the, the Cold War, the bigger situation, the international situation, a, as the war proceeded and sort of imposing a more international global perspective uh, how did the catholic did, did the catholic church's international character uh how did that fit with the cold war perspective was the church coming to be seen more and more not as an American institution, but really as an international institution that could play some kind of role in the Cold War, either for the left or the right. Right. Well, I think that question could actually go maybe better the other way. Did the Cold War change the Vatican's perception of America? Because prior to the two world wars, when America did become a, an international uh, player, especially after World War II, and given the church's um, opposition to communism, if you were going to look for help in opposing communism in some way at, at, at an international policy level, you would need to deal with America now in ways that maybe you hadn't before when you could still look to some of the European powers. Again, that's from the perspective of the Vatican. And you know, I think, again, in the 19th century, the way I've read various historical accounts, people inside the Vatican looked at America as basically 
former colony, largely run, run by British Protestants, something we don't need to pay that much attention to. Yes, there are, are Catholics going there, migrating, etc., but we don't need to really worry about it as much as we need to think still about what's happening in Europe. But again, after uh, World War II, that changes dramatically. And if you are against communism, um, America's stakes, America's value rises significantly. At the same time, um, part of what um, starts um, the the narrative in the in the book is John the Twenty Third, Pope John the Twenty Third, who um, called the Second Vatican Council. But he also wrote an encyclical um, that got William F. Buckley Jr. in a little bit trouble. I think I think the encyclical was called Mater, Mater et Magistra, and um, it, it was sort of the conservatives at National Review thought it was squishy on communism, maybe or at least on socialism, and so Buckley had this quip that he that he got from Gary Wills, which was Mater si Magistra no, and that led to a squabble between National Review and America, the the Jesuit magazine, and you know so it's not as as if I think sometimes American Catholics think that the church was historically uh, almost like um, Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy in its understanding of communism. The church has always had to try to be diplomatic in trying to um, deal with uh, governments and keep the church going in maybe hostile places. So, Again, I don't know that Buckley or others necessarily understood that as much in in, in giving John the Twenty Third a difficult time about that. So I, I think there's a but McCarthy himself would indicate that there is a strong anti-communist element in the American Church or among American Catholics. Buckley himself was one of those as well, and I think you know Richard John Newhouse was another one, even though at that time he was still a Lutheran pastor, but. Um, so, uh, it, it, in some ways, it's hard to, to figure out, say, what the pure uh, faith position is on this versus what, again, it, it's it's the experience of someone on the ground dealing with their own national government, their own bishop, their own priest. Did you just a quick question about Joe McCarthy? Was McCarthy's Catholicism ever raised during those McCarthy controversies? I don't know. But it's sort of hard for me to believe that it wasn't because of the popularity of uh, Paul Blanchard's book that came out in 1949, American Freedom and Catholic Power, which was <clears throat> a bestseller and um, sort of a systematic treatment of um, the ways in which Roman Catholicism came up short from an American perspective and even was a threat to the nation. And there's a whole whole literature on on that anti-catholicism catholicism that that emerged with Blanchard and uh, John McGreevy an historian at Notre Dame uh, has a really good treatment of it at least in one chapter of his book on um Catholics and freedom I'm forgetting the name of it I think it's just called well, anyway I can't remember it I'm not going to try to get it but it's a great book by John McGreevy what uh but before we get to to Father Newhouse uh, what impact or what way did the Cold War uh, influence Vatican II as you see it? You know, I've never really thought about that question, um, or at least thought about Vatican II in, in the Cold War 
setting of the um, East versus the West. And I guess I'm not even certain in the literature that I've read of church history, say, that that it's come up that way. But that's that's something I really need to think about more. And, I, and I'm not trying to evade it, but... Um, Maybe it really it really wasn't material to a lot of the debates in Vatican II. Well, I, maybe in the sense of uh, the Church trying to figure its place in this new world order, and the sense that the Church needs to adjust in some ways and can't be as anti-modern as it had been prior to that. I mean, that could be part of it, but so many people were really surprised that Pope John XXIII called the council. And in some ways, it's, it's uh, you know, what people experienced on the ground. I was just talking to Ken Woodward, who I know you've had on and, and very much appreciated your, your interaction with him. But um, <clears throat> for, for Catholics of that generation... What he remembers, what they remember specifically, isn't some sort of um, change in in perceptions of how the Vatican or, or or Rome or the or the Church fit into the world order. It was questions of now I can have meat on Friday. Uh, now the Mass is no longer in Latin. There goes the Gregorian chant. So in that sense, it was very much a palpable thing, and and probably even uh, parents sending their their kids to parochial schools, you know, may have seen a decline in the religious teaching in those schools and having to hire new people to teach. That's probably not coming more until the seventies, but there was a dramatic transformation of uh, the church again, to use the phrase on the ground after Vatican II, that doesn't seem at all related to say the way Americans saw communism or even the Soviets saw America. But again, I, I, I need to think about that more. Uh, to, to, to Father Newhouse, let, let me ask, do you think the term theocons was, was useful or accurate in some way? What was that? No, I, not, a, not at all. I mean, I, 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 I've interacted with um, Damon Linker, who wrote that book, who used to work at First Things, um, and he's not always been easy to interact with on social media. But when he when he still was allowing me to to um, interact with him on social media, he sort of acknowledged that uh, he maybe could have backed away from that title somewhat. And for any of your uh, listeners, there's a fascinating exchange between Ross Douthat and uh, Damon Linker again, the author of that book, Theocons, um, in the, under the auspices of the New Republic. And this is roughly just after Damon's book came out. And I think it's very instructive both about where, how Ross and, and Damon both think about these things. But another window into the relationship between the church and America and American politics. But I, I think it was personally a cheap shot. And even the subtitle of the book, which I don't remember seemed um, hysterical in a way, that this was somehow a threat. And it, it did kind of play off an older, an older meme about, uh, of anti-Catholicism. And, and I thought, uh, you know, I'm, 
Father Newhouse was a provocateur, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed reading him and in turn to the back of the book the way so many people did when when he was still editing and writing. But if you spent time with him, which I was also privileged to do a couple of times, and, and, and Damon, for instance, would have worked for him, it's just hard to imagine that this guy uh, was a threat in some way. Now, you know, okay, you might oppose his, where some of his ideas and the policies that went with them. But in even the case of, say, George W. Bush, as bad as his pres- presidency went, thanks mainly to the way the war went and the way the economy went, I mean, George Bush was a really nice guy. I mean, I just don't sort of understand that reaction other than than using that phrase and playing on those um, types, maybe sold books. I I don't know how how well the book did. Did did Father Newhouse have, did you find he he had a big influence on George W. Bush's administration in some areas at least? I, I really couldn't answer that. I mean, I think he, he had the ear in a way, but probably, you know, maybe toward the back of the Rolodex, if those things existed still then. And I mean, obviously Rolodexes are by <clears throat> alphabetized, so that wouldn't make much sense. But I, I don't really didn't get the sense that he could, he could just make a call to the White House and get President Bush on the phone. I mean, he was part of a mix of people kind of like President Trump's faith advisors, such as they are, who might gather here and there. You know, he did go to some dinners and was um, had some audiences, as it were, with the president. But I don't know that there was a direct influence. But but I but Father Newhouse did represent something bigger in the sense of what he was trying to do with with Chuck Colson and the Evangelicals and Catholics Together initiative. And you know, how representative was that of um, say? the Christian right or the social conservatives or something. So in that sense, he may have um, been more of a public figure than, say, a political figure. The book is American Catholic, The Politics of Faith During the Cold War. There is much more about Father Newhouse in the book. There are also profiles, portraits of Gary Wills, of Michael Novak, uh, our own George Weigel, and others, Brent Bozell, uh, that I would that I would recommend. Professor Hart, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Mark. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.